If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to John chapter 21. We are finishing off at John today. Um, my, my wife keeps asking me, when are we done? I don't know if that's a good thing or not, um, but here we are. John chapter 21 is what we will be finishing off. And as you find that in your Bible, <coughs> uh, movies have situations that bring shame. Shame is a reality within a movie all the time. Uh, and then it's always followed up by a reminder of some sort of mission or some sort of reconciliation of some kind. There's a failure and then there's a success. In the movie Up, which is a classic, as I was remembering, uh, I looked at the uh, database and I saw when it came out, and it, I think it is classified as a classic now. Um, there's these main characters, Doug, who's a dog. There's Beta, who's another dog. There's Russell, cute little Russell. Everyone remembers Russell, and then there's Carl as well, the grumpy old man. Um, no comment on any of these things. But Doug, as we are first interacted with Doug, he's wearing the cone of shame. He's a, one of the main characters, and he consistently has mistakes. He consistently makes mistakes, and he has to walk around for most of the movie with this cone of shame around him. He gets lost, his focus is always gone, and he, he gets distracted all the time. And as a result, he has to wear this, this, uh, this cone. The thing about movies is that often when we're watching them, they begin to tug at our hearts because as we are watching them, we're often reminded of the very same situations within our own life. Times of shame. We forget who we are, where our identity is found, and we fixate on that shame and we lose sight of the mission that we've been called to do. Or we get fixated on other people's success and forget what we have been called to do. In John chapter 21, we see once again how Jesus reveals himself, and we see a situation of a man who's kind of riddled with shame, I guess, probably. And Jesus reveals himself to his disciples, his resurrected glory. He begins to interact with them, specifically with Peter. And Jesus reminds him of something very important. And it's a great reminder for you and I today. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 21, follow along with me. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. I usually read it. I usually say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you're old school like me, you reply with, there we go. Because this is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus reveals himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat but, the night they, uh, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment 
for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Verse 9. When they, had, when they had got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the nets ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And, they all, and, all, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was, not the, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealing to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. In verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hand and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show but what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. So the saying spread about, abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it that, you, that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the chance we have to come and to gather and to praise you and to worship you. And as we open your word together, as your word is preached, this is a continuation of our worship. So may our listening be an act of worship to you. 
open our ears, open our minds to what your word has to say, Lord. I pray that by your word you would even convict us, encourage us, and spur us on. Lord, there's no possible way that I can make this turn out well. So by your grace, Lord, may you do that. And I pray that for all the churches that are gathering in the very way that we are, who are faithful to the word of God, who are preaching the word of God clearly. Specifically, I think of Summerside and Pastor Devin, that you would use them and bless them as they seek to be disciples and make disciples of Jesus Christ. I pray that the church here in London would magnify your name. May we be united around the gospel. And Lord, as I begin to preach, Lord, I want you to be glorified. And I want to speak of you. And I want to praise you. I want to praise your name. And God, I can't do this on my own. So will you not turn this out well? Lord, by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon to bring glory to your name and joy to your people and salvation to the lost. And amen. In verses 1 to 14, we see that Jesus is revealing himself. He says right there at the beginning in verse 1, after, the, after this, Jesus reveals himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. This is another word for the Sea of Galilee. And throughout John, Jesus has been revealing things. He's been revealing uh, to Israel. He's been revealing that there's wonderful Kleenexes here. In John 1, 31, we see that uh, he might be revealed to Israel. In John 2, 11, we see that he would manifest his glory, that he would show, reveal his glory. In John 17, we see, I have manifested or revealed your name, God the Father's name, to the people whom you have given me out of this world. And here Jesus shows himself in his resurrected self. He is revealing himself now as he stands by the beach. He had promised his disciples to meet them in Galilee. We see this in Matthew 28 and in other synoptic gospels where Jesus comes and says to his disciples when he first revealed, go to Galilee, I will meet you there. In verses 2 to 3, we see he reveals himself to these men as they go fishing. And there's something that's interesting because I think a lot of time we focus on why is Peter going fishing. The text doesn't say, so let's not speculate. I think the simplest is, the answer is probably the simplest. They were just waiting as they seek to obey Jesus. They're just providing until they get their new responsibilities. And Jesus said that he would meet them there, and that's where they are. That's where they're waiting. What else are you going to do? Let's go fishing. What's interesting about this small interaction with, Jesus, with the Peter and the disciples is you see something coming up within Simon Peter. He says, I'm going fishing. And the disciples like, hey, me too. You ever have that guy in that group where everyone follows? Hey, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to get this. I'm going to get that. And everyone's like, me too. Here in this small interaction with Peter, we see something that is foreshadowed into the next page in Acts. Where Peter leads the small church. It really shows Peter's leadership. And we will see that later in Acts, which we'll have the joy of doing later this year. But here Jesus is standing in his resurrected self. 
And Jesus is there at the shore waiting, and he calls up to the disciples who don't know who he is. We don't know why. We, maybe it's a foggy morning. Maybe it's a misty, whatever. We don't know. But he calls out to the disciples, and he says, Children, these are full-grown men, may I add. But you see Jesus' care and his love for these men. And these men don't even know it's Jesus. And he calls out to them, Jesus. He calls out to them, children. Hey, have you caught anything? The text actually implies that Jesus already knows the answer to this question that he's asking. If you were to look in the Greek. But here, he goes out and he asks, Hey, children, have you caught anything? And the answer is no. Just one word. Have you ever talked to a fisherman who comes back empty-handed? Hey, did he catch anything? No. It's true. If Mike Clarkson was here, you would ask him. But as they go and they say no, he says to these men as they're in 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 their boat, he says, hey, cast your net on the right side of the boat. Here, Jesus, in his resurrected power, he knows where the fish are. He knows what the disciples need so they can catch them. And he calls out to them, children, have you caught any fish? The answer is no. He says, well, try casting out your net on the right side of the boat. Not the left, the right. In verse 7, what spurs John's response? It is the Lord, he says. As they cast the net in, and there's so much fish, they don't even know what to do with as they're hauling in those, that, that big net, that big catch of what we see later, large fish. Not little, tiny, little, like, goldfish. Large fish. Which generally aren't 100 yards off from the shore, may I add, if you've gone fishing. So here Jesus is, he calls them, he says, and John responds, It is the Lord. Let me ask you your Bible knowledge. Is this the first time that this has happened? And the answer is no. So what spurs John's response? They can't see. They don't know the man that's on there. What's spurring? Memory. Luke 5, 1 to 11. Jesus has already done this. He's already done this miracle. Maybe they couldn't see Jesus from the boat, but with those words and the catch, John has a flashback to the first time when Jesus said, hey, cast your net on the other side. And he yells out, without a doubt in his mind, exclamation point there, it is the Lord. Jesus resurrected full in power there. Simon Peter, good old Simon Peter, He's like, forget you guys, I'm out of here. He jumps into the water in excitement because it is Jesus. Jesus is there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we know the heart of somebody? Generally by their response or their actions. And here's Peter, he doesn't wait for the other friends of his to gather into the sheep, gather gather the, uh, the fish into the boat. He jumps in. After putting his cloak on, which I still don't know, but whatever. And he swims 
that 100-meter dash, 100-yard dash. And Peter's quick response shows his real, true feelings. This response is consistent to what he had already said, what Peter had already said about Jesus back in John 13, when Peter expresses his loyalty to Jesus. But let us not forget, as we're looking at this story, that Peter has already denied Jesus three times. But here's Jesus in his resurrected power. He's revealing himself. If Peter felt Jesus was done with him at that moment of time, and as Jesus stands at the foot of the beach talking to his disciples, this would be an appropriate response, would it not? In verse 9, we see this interesting description here of a fire burning coals. A fire of burning coals, it says. There's only one other place in John where that is used. And that's at Peter's denial. There's a buildup to something else that is happening. The other disciples catch up to Peter finally. I sometimes wonder what the little interaction would have been there. Thanks for leaving us, Peter. And what we see here is the risen Lord who has revealed himself with resurrected power, who knows where the fish are, serving his disciples with a hot breakfast. In verses 10 to 11, we see that there was 153 fish that were found, and Jesus commands them to bring the fish, and, and we see yet another historically accurate detail, not 150, 153. And as they come to Jesus around the fire, they already know who it is, so they dare not ask, is it really you, Jesus? Jesus has already shown himself. He's shown his knowledge, his omnipotence, his power in that one miracle. And in verse 13, they ate together. The text is telling us that Jesus actually ate breakfast. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about that, about the importance that Jesus isn't a ghost. He's physically there. You know, not like Casper, where the ghost would eat all the food and it would just fall out of them. Jesus sat with his disciples around this coal-burning fire and had breakfast with them, talked, chatted. How was your day? How was your night? Was it long? Oh, it was long, Jesus. We didn't get any fish. In Luke 24, 41, we see, and while they were in still disbelief for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And here, once again, Jesus is eating with his disciples. And this isn't the first time. This is the third time, as John says. And John wants to establish that Jesus is really alive and in the flesh. Because this is important. Because it points back all the way to John 1. Because of Jesus' deity. Jesus is showing both his humanity, because he's eating, and his deity, because he rose from the dead. 2 Corinthians actually also talks about that you need two or three witnesses to prove that something is right. And, and John is saying, hey, this has not happened once. This isn't a one-off. This isn't the second time. This is the third time that this has happened. 
Jesus shows himself in his resurrected power, showing once again who he is, that he is the Son of God, and he has conquered the last outcome of sin by conquering death. In 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57, it says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the immortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals himself. And as the resurrected Lord, he goes to do one more thing for his disciples. In verses 15 to 19, we see an interaction between Peter Peter and Jesus. Jesus restores Peter. This is an important interaction between Jesus and Peter. And to be honest, this is probably one of the one heart-wrenching things I can ever read in the Bible. Because, as I have said before, I feel like most of the time I'm Peter. How many times have you felt like you've out-sinned God's grace? So this is an important interaction between Jesus and, the people, and Peter. And Peter denied Jesus. He wasn't present at Jesus' crucifixion, even though he had made some pretty bold statements that he would stand with Jesus. Peter had denied Jesus three times, and now he asks him to reaffirm his love, then recommissions him. And what we see is Jesus reversing what happened at the first charcoal pit where Jesus denied, where Peter denied Jesus. John 13, 36 says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where, you are go- where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. And Peter responds with, yeah, right, Jesus, I'm following. So they finish out their breakfast in verse 15. And Jesus asks them three times about where is Peter's love? Where is your love? Do you love me more than these He says, essentially Jesus is asking, do you love me more than all of these other men that are sitting around this fire? Do you love me more than all of these men that are sitting here? Do you love Jesus more than all of these? Peter's response is, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. It's the same no we see in Luke 16, 15 where it says and he said to them you are those uh, you are those who justify yourselves before god but god knows your hearts peter is professing that jesus knows the intimacy of his heart and jesus knows something about peter he can see right at his heart and as i listen to this first question and response i'm reminded of paul's words as he struggles with sin in romans 7 18 to 19 it says for i know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for i have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out for i do not do what sorry for i do not do the good i want but the evil i do not want is what i keep on doing and jesus's interaction with peter is a gospel intersection it is a gospel surgery that is beginning to happen in this life reminding him once again that it doesn't stop here at that 
Because even in Romans, it continues on with, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see what Jesus is doing here with Peter as he asks these three questions? Do you see what Jesus does for you if you are in Christ? And it is a very painful process. Because who likes surgery? No one better put up their hand. Like, if you do, like, I'm sorry, you got a problem. Nobody likes surgery. It's needed. I have an aunt who's a surgeon, and she would regularly say that surgery is the last resort. They try to fix things before it gets to that point. But here, Jesus is producing and conducting a gospel surgery. Peter responds with, you know, Jesus, that I love you. And you can see my heart. You know my, my, me intimately. And Jesus' command is, show your love by feeding my sheep. And Peter will later write to the elders and churches that are scattered around Galatia in 1 Peter 5.2, which is an amazing verse for anyone who's aspiring or desires to be an elder. Shepherd the flock, he says, of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly. And I'm sure as Peter wrote those words in that letter, he had those words of Jesus echoing in his mind, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. In verse 16, so Jesus asks again. And Peter says, I, you know I love you, Jesus. You know I love you. Jesus responds to tend my sheep, meaning shepherd my sheep. Verse 17, Jesus asks again. Again, a third time. Have you ever been asked the same question multiple times by the same person? It really annoys me. Peter was grieved. As the text says, Peter knows Jesus, knows his heart. So why, Jesus, are you asking me this again and again and again? You know everything. You know that I love you. Peter is affirming Jesus' omniscience. He, sh he shows Jesus' deity. If Jesus knows everything, he knows Peter's heart. And Jesus replies again to him, feed my sheep. We know that Jesus is the true shepherd. As John 10 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his down for his sheep. Continues on in John 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And Peter and the other apostles are pointed to be shepherds, under shepherds of God's flock. So how will Peter show that he loves Jesus as we read this text? In two ways. By loving God's people and feeding them by teaching them God's word. He will not only bring the sheep to pasture to be fed, but Peter will guard over them as a shepherd does. And this is passed down to every elder and every pastor as Peter sets the example for all other under-shepherds, for all other elders, all other pastors that will follow after him. 
For Peter, this is a renewal of his loyalty and reaffirms his responsibilities. Remember in the movie Up, every single time uh, someone yells, Squirrel! The dogs would be, get distracted and run after the squirrel. There's that one scene where they're flying in planes. Yeah, dogs were flying in planes, I know. And one dog says, Squirrel! And they all crash into each other. That squirrel moment has happened. The shame event has happened. And there's a key difference here that we see in this text between the other apostle named Judas who betrayed Jesus and Peter's response. Both betrayed Jesus, but the grief is completely opposite. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But in verse 18, Jesus begins to foretell what will happen to Peter. He will stretch out his hands, and Jesus tells Peter how he will die, and he will die from crucifixion. Church history, church tradition tells us that, Je- that Peter did die through crucifixion. And I use the word tradition because it's not actually written down anywhere. And that he refused to even be crucified the same way that Jesus did, so he got crucified upside down. And this was the kind of death that Peter waited for until this moment of time. And what, an amaz- what amazes me is that Peter served for three decades with this hanging over his head. How do you do that? You know, when you're a kid, you go get all your shots and it's the big mistake of a parent to go tell their kids beforehand, hey, we're going to the doctor's office, right? Because they stress about it. They're like, oh, no. And it hangs over their head. And Jesus replies at the end of 19, follow me. And just as Jesus gave of himself for his people, Jesus says that Peter... Peter's love for him will end with him giving his life for Jesus. And Peter is to follow what Jesus did by giving himself as he serves God's people. And this is the self-giving lifestyle Peter is being called to as he pastors the flock of Jesus. That will end with his martyrdom. And through this all, he keeps his eyes on the prize and faithfully does that. And that's how He does it for three more decades. I don't know where you're at this morning, but I bet you have some sort of guilt going on in your own heart. We all deal with it. But here Jesus kindly takes the time to point Peter back to him and to the mission he has called him to do. Jesus gives Peter an experience that only, not only matches, but cancels out those poisonous effects of the denial and the betrayal that he gave to Jesus just a short few days before. Jesus does the same with you and me. By his blood, we have been made clean. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In 1 John 1, 7, it says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Without Jesus, we all stand guilty before God. But we aren't cleansed by our own actions. We are cleansed by what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We took time to remember that as we gathered around this table of communion. 
we, are just, we aren't justified by our own righteousness. We are justified by Jesus' righteousness. And like Peter, we need to be reminded about the gospel of Jesus and that we stand before a holy God not based upon our own actions, but based upon his actions. And this brings us to rest. Three times Jesus asks him a question. But do you notice what Jesus doesn't ask him? And I was thinking about this this whole week. What did Jesus not ask? He doesn't ask, do you promise not to screw up again? I think that's huge. That's not the question, because we know that Peter does. Galatians 2 clearly tells us about the interaction between the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter as, Peter, as Paul rebukes Peter for isolating Gentiles. Jesus focuses on Peter's heart, not his works. Works come out of the heart, and we can't earn his favor. Jesus doesn't get Peter to talk about how loyal he will be. Jesus gives him the chance to affirm one thing, his surpassing love. And Jesus then tells him how that love is shown by feeding the sheep, by feeding the lambs that belong to Jesus. And Jesus says to follow him. And if Peter loves Jesus as much as he says he does, he will obey and will make sure that the sheep that are in Christ are fed. He will faithfully stand before his people and he will faithfully preach and exhort the word of God. And that's the job that is passed on to every elder and every pastor. If you want to know how a pastor or elder loves the flock of Jesus, look at how they point to Jesus' word. If they point to anything else, that's counter to what we see here. As Jesus charges Peter with a mission, Jesus is conducting a fine surgery on Peter's heart. It's a gospel surgery. If you had a surgery, it's generally because you needed it, not to have a fun experience. But it's generally for your good. Here, Jesus is conducting a free heart surgery but it's a surgery that is hard. I, I, I like how Brian Chapel says, he puts it this way, that grace produces redemptive pain, not punitive pain. Still hearts, still hurts, whatever type of pain it is. I can't believe what Peter must have felt at this moment. Imagine if Jesus didn't, didn't take the time to walk with him on that beach and to remind him of these things. For those of us who are in Christ, we need this reminder every day. We live in a life full of grief and shame. I spent, my, I spent time in, in the Middle East, and, and they always talk about a culture of shame. Well, I'm Canadian. I grew up in Canada. There's no different here either. There's so many of us who are walking around with guilt and shame. And I have that sinful habit of remind, remembering every single bad thing I've ever done for some reason. And I too struggle with resting in God's grace. And here is another example of God's grace being worked out in Peter's life. And grace produces redemptive pain. In 2 Corinthians 7, we see, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also that earnestness to clear yourselves. That 
indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in this matter. The gospel takes away all the weighing grief away and brings a, life bring, uh, brings a life-bringing godly grief. The law condemns, the gospel convicts. So when we look at our lives, the law creates that woe-is-me type of tears. That self-centeredness where I go into the corner of the dark room and I wail and say, God, I'm an idiot, I just, I'm stupid. All I want to do is eat worms, as the book says. The gospel brings tears that have eyes brought up to God. And Jesus goes right in for the surgery that Peter needs. And as Jesus restores Peter, as they're walking along the beach, there's an interaction in 20 to 25 of Jesus and the beloved disciple. And this is John. This is the writer of this book, the beloved disciple. John doesn't want to be named in here, but he is part of the narrative, so he's got to put himself in there somehow. And Paul, or sorry, not Paul, Peter, walking along the beach, (laughs) <laughs> there's John kind of just taking along behind him and Peter turns around and says what about that man what about this man as he's just been told that big news that he will indeed be crucified we don't know how he will die but Peter knew probably the same weights as the grace he experienced in his restoration is what he is feeling at this moment and what Jesus' what Jesus's call for Peter is, follow me. Why is it that we get so distracted about what is happening around us? There's a great interaction between Jesus and Peter, and he's just restored Peter. Peter's, John, Jesus has just restored Peter. And the first thing that comes to his mind is, what about John? Why is it so easy for us to take our eyes off of Christ and look at what else is happening around us? We take our eyes off of what Hebrews says, the one who is the author and the finisher of faith, our eyes eyes off of our commander and our chief. Peter was concerned about what will happen to his friend, and Jesus reminds him once again that he should be more concerned with fulfilling Jesus' purposes. As he says in 22, if it is my will that he remain until I come. In other words, Peter, it doesn't matter what happens to these other people. Keep your eyes on me. Each disciple must focus on what they've been called to do, no matter what God has in store for others. And John wants to stop the rumors that have happened. We see this. There's actually instances within within the Gospels of this happening, the epistles, of people thinking that this rumor that, oh, Jesus is going to come back before one of the disciples dies. And so John wants to make it very clear that's not what Jesus is saying. (laughs) What Jesus is saying to Peter is, focus on me. And as John closes off his gospel, he says, there are so many other things that we could talk about. So many. They would fill a book that would fill the world. And John 
wants to do for you and I is magnify the abundance of the redemptive work of Jesus. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. As Titus 3 says, Make sure your perception of God comes from who he says he is in his word. Correct your mind and your heart with what God's word says. And I've been thinking about this for a while. And as I think about how we get distracted so easily, I think of missionaries like Hudson Taylor or William Carey or Amy Carmichael. I think of a friend who pastored his church faithfully for 10 years and closed the doors. We get so distracted about what is happening around us, like dogs being called out to squirrels. We take our eyes off of Jesus and our mission. And it's when that happens, we begin to fixate our eyes on other things, and we forget that as disciples, we are called to focus on what we've been called to and not to focus on what other things God is doing in other people. And again, I think of that song that says, I fix my eyes on you, the founder and the finisher of our faith. I fix my eyes on you, the solace in our suffering is my strength. How easy it is for you and I to look at other people and be distracted and envious of someone else's calling. But the good shepherd who knows us by name and calls each of us has called us to do one thing, follow him. So what do we do with all of this? Resurrected Jesus restores his people and sends them out on mission. Jesus is resurrected. And this brings us hope. An amazing hope, an amazing hope-filling act. It's not perishable. It cannot be taken away. And one day, because Jesus was resurrected, we have a hope that we will one day be perfectly equipped for heaven and supernatural living with Jesus. We will be with Jesus. That's the prize. We also see that Jesus restores the Bible is clear that we stand before God guilty, but I love how C.J. Mahani put it in his book, The Cross-Centered Life. It's impossible to resolve issues of yesterday by doing better today. Better tomorrow, sorry. It is impossible to resolve issues of yesterday by doing better tomorrow. If you want to get rid of true guilt, you must have godly sorrow, which leads to repentance. And this is the difference between Peter's guilt and Judas's guilt. One, the sin has, once the sin has been repented of, the result is rejoicing in the grace of God because only Jesus restores. False guilt that we see with Judas can bring you into depression and make you spiritually paralyzed. And you begin to think that God has given up on you and despair of ever, ever, ever being sanctified. False guilt tends to be very me-centered rather than God-centered. And the tendency is to think we'll never be good enough and focus on our shortcomings. But we are called to rest in Christ's finished work on the cross. Because the answer to that is you're, you're messed up. But your Lord and Savior is perfect and has perfectly appeased the law of God. Live in guilt 
live in shame, come to Jesus. With Jesus and the beloved disciple, we're reminded of how easy it is to distract it. Paul Tripp in his book, The Dangerous Call, says, stop looking at yourself in carnival mirrors. You know those ones that are all broken up? Why? Because a carnival mirror gives us a distortion of who we really are. And they're everywhere we look. Let's keep our eyes on Christ. Jesus sends us out on a mission. Don't get distracted. Are you his? Then let's go out keeping our eyes on him. As the Westminster Confession states, they ask this question, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Only in Jesus can we do that. Only because of his finished work on the cross. Only because Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again. If we keep our eyes on him, that's when we can enjoy him forever as we seek to glorify him. And that's how the many people throughout church history are able to have joy in the hardest of times. Resurrected Jesus restores his people and sends them out on mission. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder from John 21 of who you are and what you have done for us. God, you are so good. Uh, I pray that we would just reflect more and more upon who you are and what you have done for us, that we can stand before the throne of grace boldly because of what you have paid for us on the cross. I pray that we would uh, rest in that, that our identity would be found in you and not in other things, and that we would go out on mission declaring who you are to this broken world. Amen.